0: Okay, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Psalm 112. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Uh, I don't know why I always get up here and my Kindle like freezes when I'm trying to unlock it. (laughs) I have notes. I need them. Um, Yeah, Psalm 112. So as I mentioned last week, um, we looked at Psalm 111, these two psalms are uh, connected by some similarities in structure, similarities in uh, in language, similarities in themes, overall themes. One of the main connections between these two psalms is the idea of the fear of the Lord. So in the Bible, uh, there are several writings that explicitly and mostly have to do with wisdom. Wisdom literature, uh, which is, uh, in, the, in the Bible, wisdom is knowing how to live all of life as humans are meant to live in a right relationship with God, created by God in his image for a relationship with him. That's how we're meant to live, and that's what uh, real wisdom is, is knowing how to do that. So biblical wisdom writings, wisdom literature, they often say the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning or the foundation for Wisdom, and that, that was showed up in our psalm last week, in Psalm 111. So uh, that was about how the fear of the Lord comes from knowing his works. If you know his works, uh, you'll have the fear of the Lord, the absolute greatness of who God is and what he has done. It evokes our fear of him, which is the basis for all of our wisdom, for all of our life with him. Wisdom comes from fearing him, which comes from knowing him especially as he's revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we looked at last week. This week in Psalm 112, we'll consider what the fear of the Lord looks like in the life of the one who is wise. What that looks like, how it plays itself out, at least in, in one kind of significant area. There's some emphasis in this psalm on the generosity, the generosity of the one who fears the Lord as a facet of his wisdom for life with God. And uh, and there's a little bit of contrast here with the one who does not fear the Lord. So that shows up at the end. Uh, These are the things we'll talk about this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read Psalm 112. Father, it's likely that we do not know how badly we need you, how badly we need your help as we consider your word We pray that you would not only make us aware of our need for your help, but that you would provide your help by your Holy Spirit, transform our minds, renew our hearts, help us to be changed into the likeness of Jesus as we consider your word this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth. And melts away, the desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Psalm one eleven, which we looked at last week, is more about the Lord whom we're to fear. Psalm one twelve, is more about the one who fears, the one who fears the Lord. Given those different subjects, and uh, we might be prone to think that they're they're vastly different subjects—God and the one who fears God totally different subjects, right? But given those different... I think it's... I think it's quite significant that there are so many similarities between these two psalms. I think there's a lot of significance to be seen in the fact that uh, there are so many similarities between the descriptions of the Lord and the one who fears the Lord. There are a lot of similarities. Something that's being communicated here with these two psalms, which are obviously linked in so many ways, uh, is... uh, communicated in the shared form of the psalms, the shared language, the shared themes. What's being communicated is the shared character of the two subjects that are being described in these psalms. The one who fears the Lord becomes like the one that he fears. So, in our psalm this morning, in verse 3, the second part of that, 3b, it says, His righteousness endures forever. Well, if you look back at Psalm one eleven three b it's exactly the same words that the psalmist used to describe God. His righteousness endures forever. In our psalm this morning, 4, uh, uh, verse 4b, the second part of that verse, it says, He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. The one who fears the Lord is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Again, those, those words are used in Psalm 111, verse 4 be to describe God. The Lord is gracious and merciful. There's something enduring about the one who fears the Lord in our psalm. You see it in a lot of places. Uh, Verse 6, the righteous will never be moved. He'll be remembered forever. His heart is firm. His heart is steady in verse 7 and 8. And again, in verse 9, it says his righteousness endures forever. It's repeated. And this corresponds to several times in Psalm 111 where God's attributes and works are said to last forever and ever. And maybe you remember from last week when I mentioned the fact that these psalms are both acrostics, right? So after that first, that first line where it says, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. After that, <clears throat> the first word of each new line begins with the next consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that gives a sense. Um, It's not just kind of a nifty trick or a really hard way to write. Um, It it gives a sense of the wholeness of the subject matter. It gives a sense of the beauty of the subject matter of both of these psalms. The beauty and the wholeness in this case, um, it gives a a sense of the the wholeness and beauty of the the subjects being the, the Lord and the one who fears the Lord. The same alphabet is used to describe them both. The same language is used to describe them both. The fullness of God's revelation from A to Z is used to describe both the Lord and the one who fears the Lord. The whole reason for the alphabet. This is written in an acrostic using the whole alphabet uh, of the Hebrew language. The whole reason for an alphabet in the first place is so that God can communicate these things to us. What he is like and what it looks like to live a true human life in relationship with him, true wisdom. These two psalms are, um, are ultimately brought together in their complete wholeness and beauty. They're brought together in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord who is described in Psalm 111, whose great works of salvation we fear. He's the Lord. And Jesus is the blessed man described in Psalm 112, who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments. No one ever delighted in the commandments of God like Jesus, the human Jesus. So, there are so many similarities between the, the, the two subjects of these two Psalms, ultimately because they're describing the same person for us, in a sense, prophetically. Jesus is God, he's the Lord whose name is awesome and holy, and Jesus is the truly Happy, blessed, and wise man living in right relationship with God. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that Jesus became to us wisdom from God. He became to us wisdom from God. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the living A to Z, the the living acrostic poem who makes known both God and wise humanity. In his own person Verse 4 Jesus is the one Whose human grace and mercy Are the the perfect image Of the divine grace and mercy Verse 6 Jesus is the one who will never be moved Who will be remembered forever By God who lives forever He's the enduring God and man So the, the whole psalm uh, this psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 112, is fulfilled in Jesus before it can be fulfilled in us. It's got to be fulfilled in Jesus. Right? So Jesus is the only human being who ever lived with true wisdom. He's the only human being that this psalm really describes perfectly. Uh, Jesus is the only one about whom you can say, for example, in verses 3 and 9, His righteousness endures forever. He's the only one you can say that His, his righteousness endures forever because of who he is. Because of who he is in his relationship with God. You cannot say of yourself that your righteousness endures forever unless you're talking about Jesus' righteousness on your behalf. Jesus' righteousness imputed to you that counts for you. Jesus' righteousness that you're connected to through your relationship with him. The gospel says he lived for you So that his righteousness Which endures forever Would be yours And the gospel says that he died for you So that your unrighteousness Would be his And it would die on the cross with him And be removed As an obstacle In your relationship with God So when you trust in him When you trust in Jesus For his life with God To count for you His relationship with God To be Uh, definitive of your relationship with God, then and only then can this psalm also begin to be fulfilled in your life uh, through your spiritual union with Jesus. We can. We can reflect God's character. We can reflect his righteousness. We can reflect his grace and mercy. As we come to fear the Lord Jesus and trust the Lord Jesus. As we are Rebirthed and regenerated, reborn into the house and family of Jesus, into God's own family by the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so this psalm is primarily about Jesus, but it's also explicitly about those who are born again into this family, into his family, into the household of God. It says in verse 2, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Blessed, just like the one who fears the Lord, the one who delights in God's commandments is blessed, so all his offspring, the generation of the upright, will be blessed and happy. This can't be just talking about the biological offspring of the one who is wise or the one who is just, uh, because that would be too exclusive it, It couldn't include those who are childless. Jesus himself, biologically, physically, was childless. So it, I mean, it would be talking about no one, right? If it was just talking about biology. This is talking about those who are in the spiritual household, the spiritual family of the Lord. So not only is Jesus blessed in his relationship with God as the only true and righteous and wise man, not only is he blessed... But those who are of the generation of the upright, that is the regeneration, those who are born again of the Holy Spirit, who are counted righteous through their connection to Jesus, through faith in Jesus, as we fear and trust Jesus. That's the generation of the upright, and that's the offspring that this psalm is talking about. And so it is explicitly talking about us, and it says, it says that in plural, the generation of the upright, plural. Plural. Will be blessed. And in verse 4, light dawns in the darkness for the upright, plural. Because He, singular, is gracious, merciful, and righteous. So we are saved by Jesus. He's our great representative in relationship with God. And we are refashioned into His image as His spiritual offspring, the spiritual offspring of God Himself. So last week, Psalm 111, we talked about fear as the, the appropriate response to, to God, the appropriate response to the Lord Jesus, the appropriate response to his great works. Fear is actually a feature of our love. It's a feature of our worship, of his absolute greatness. That might be a bit counterintuitive, but there it is. Um, I'm not going to go over that whole sermon again, uh, but it's, it's counterintuitive how fear can be an aspect of our love. For God, but there it is. Uh, for a little more counterintuitivity, counterintuition—I don't know—is there a word for that? Uh, <clears throat> spell check doesn't think so. This week, Psalm one twelve, you can see that fearing God, fearing God, actually leads to true happiness, true blessedness. Fearing God makes us like God. Does that make any sense? Fearing God makes us. Fearless. Does that make any sense? Verse 1 The one who fears the Lord is called blessed, blessed. Um, which means, ultimately, when you look through all the scriptures and try to piece together what that word means, uh, when it's applied to humans, it means we're, we're truly, deeply, profoundly happy. In the same way that God Himself is truly, deeply, profoundly happy, the triune God in communion. Right, So in the Bible, blessedness is a happiness of love. It's a divine happiness of love. It's the joy of communion. And when you fear the Lord and you trust in Jesus, you have the true, deep, profound happiness of divine communion. The communion that belongs to God Himself. That's yours through fearing the Lord Jesus and trusting the Lord Jesus. The happiness of living your life with God, that's the whole point of wisdom. In fact, it's also the true wealth that's spoken of in our psalm in verse 3. It says that wealth and riches are in his house. Uh, It's pretty natural to read that in terms of just sort of earthly prosperity. But it's, not. it's not the American prosperity gospel Like you see on TV That if you're righteous And wise And faithful If you really fear the Lord And if you're really generous enough Then God will give you money And houses and cars and boats and planes And everything You have it all That's, that's false teaching from the evil one um, And the evil one doesn't want you to know God Right. True wealth and riches is knowing God. It's knowing God, it's having God in blessed communion, which is what Jesus has and it's what Jesus freely shares with all who trust in his grace. He shares it freely. It's a gift. So, fearing him leads to true happiness, and it's a happiness that cannot be taken away. It is divine. It is eternal. Fearing Jesus also makes us like him. So the one who fears the Lord, who trusts in Jesus, he has the very life of God inside him, or the Spirit of God inside her. And that's the only way that we can be renewed in God's image and reflect his righteousness and grace and mercy in our lives. So when you fear in the Lord and you trust in Jesus, you find your true happiness and your true wealth in him, and you're becoming more like Him, one of the significant things that happens that's pointed out by this psalm is that you're, you're set free from worldly fears. We've sung that in our song this morning, I Lay My Sins on Jesus. <clears throat> um, you're set free from worldly fears in order to become generous. That's the result of being set free from your fears is generosity. If your vision is filled only with what this world has to offer, with earthly wealth, then you will fear how things go for you in this world. You'll be full of fear. You'll fear not having enough. You'll fear for the future. You'll fear losing what you already have. You'll fear those who might be able to take away what you have. If those are your fears... It shows what your true wealth is. And it isn't blessed communion with God. Not when you're fearing things like that. If your fears uh, are about things like money and earthly wealth, then it shows that your true wealth, your idea of true wealth, isn't blessed communion with God. That wealth was given to you as a free gift all of it up front, because of God's grace. That wealth cannot be lost or taken away. And you have that wealth forever in abundance, in infinite abundance. Blessed communion with God because of Jesus Christ. If your fears show that your true wealth is just worldly money stuff, then you'll have to work hard your whole life. You'll have to bend over backwards to amass The things you really care about, to get them, and then to protect them, to make sure you keep them. But if you fear the Lord, and you trust in Jesus, and you find your true happiness in Him, and you're becoming like Him, that means you will become fearless in your generosity because He has filled your heart with spiritual riches. Spiritual riches in Christ are all yours And you can never lose them, no matter what else you may or may not have in this world. And that's exactly what the perfect human life with God looks like in Jesus. Because when he was in this world, he didn't have much. He had like the shirt on his back. Uh, It says in verse 5, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends. It's well with Jesus. It's well with Jesus who gave away all that he had, even his own life to those who were in need, and it's well with us when we have his life in us causing us to be generous, like he is generous. So Paul Paul wrote a lot about generosity as a major feature of the Christian life in several of his letters. He mentions uh, almsgiving, uh, mentions taking an offering for the poor, he mentions taking the collection to help the Jerusalem church through a famine which was a major project of the early church and a major project that Paul adopted uh, in in really all the churches that he went to and planted he was talking about this this uh, collection for the Jerusalem church during their famine so Kelly Capek he he has a good book called The God Who Gives says this studying Paul's theology apart from the collection is very much like studying the presidencies of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, apart from the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, or studying the speeches of Martin Luther King, Jr., apart from the Civil Rights Movement. Paul did many different things throughout his apostolic ministry, but this campaign, this collection that he took for the Jerusalem church, consumed a a great deal of his time, energy, and imagination that we cannot rightly understand the one, his theology, apart from the other, the outworking of it, the generosity. So in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and, uh, and Joe Hamilton read a little bit of that in our New Testament reading, Paul spends two whole chapters talking about generosity. He's encouraging generosity, and he grounds it in the life of Jesus. He says, you know, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And we sing that. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. So Paul is talking about the work of salvation. The work of salvation, where Jesus gave the glorious wealth and riches of heaven to us, which cost him everything to do. It cost him everything. And he was not afraid to do it. Jesus was not afraid to do it because he knew that he would be forever remembered by his God and Father. He'd be raised from the dead, he'd be seated at God's right hand, and he'd rule with him forever. Jesus was not afraid of losing his own life, but he gave it, he gave it all away. And when we fear the Lord, when we fear Him, we put our trust in Jesus and we have His own life at work in our lives, then we will not be afraid of losing even, even our very lives, but we'll become generous like He is. We'll be free from all the fears of it. It says in verses 7 and 8, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Until there's nothing more even possibly that he could fear. If you fear the Lord and you trust in Jesus, you might very well hear bad news of many kinds. Bad news that seems to threaten some aspect of life in this world or another. But you're set free from the fear of it. You don't have to be afraid of it. Because you fear the Lord. And you have everything in him. In the gospel, we've heard the best news that God will be with us forever. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We have the wealth and riches of heaven permanently. Maybe we won't have enough worldly health or wealth. Maybe we won't have enough for the future. Maybe we'll lose it all. Maybe somebody will take it all. But when we fear the Lord and fear His absolute greatness, we don't have to fear that. We don't have to fear the the way that our earthly health and wealth might rise or fall, we won't be debilitated or paralyzed by fear. We'll be moved by the fear of the Lord, moved to become generous like He is. So it says in, um, in verse nine of our Psalm, it says He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor. And Paul quotes that. Paul quotes that in Second Corinthians nine, saying that God has given us everything in Jesus. But it isn't just that he's given us everything, period. It's that he's given us everything to share. To share. To give like he himself has given, happily without reservation, without self-protection, without fear. So again, Kelly Capick says that God calls his people to live out together the gospel pattern of gift. Even as God has given himself to us in our lowliness, caring for us in our great need, so now God calls the church to care for the poor. In this way, God includes us in his ongoing movement of grace and love, promising that such giving leads to the life that is truly life. He's including us in his own life, in divine communion, when he invites us into a generosity like his. So Paul writes uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, he says to the church in Corinth, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, these other churches, for in a severe test of affliction, this was not easy for them, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. That's what generosity can look like in the lives of those who fear the Lord. And um, the wicked bristle at that. The wicked bristle at the idea of such good, fearless, abundant, generous life. The psalm began with a description of the happiness, the happiness and blessedness of the one who fears the Lord, the wise one, the one who is like God. The psalm ends with a stark contrast of the the absolute unhappiness. The anger and the fear of the one who doesn't fear the Lord, who doesn't trust in Him. So it says in verse 10, the wicked man sees it. What does he see? He sees the the wise man, the righteous man, the the one who fears the Lord and so is fearless, has no worldly cares or fears, the one who is generous. He sees the life of this one who is living with God. The wicked man sees it. And is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. And uh, maybe another way to translate that is he quails. He's melting away in fear. The desire of the wicked will perish. The one who doesn't fear the Lord, who doesn't trust in Jesus, has only one option. He can desire things that will always be stripped away from him. He'll never know the true happiness of having everything in Christ forever. Permanently, securely, assuredly, can't be stripped away. He'll never know that happiness, the blessed communion with God. His his life will consist only of fear of what he has to lose. Fear that he will lose what he has. And he will lose everything that he cares about in the end. When he looks at the happiness of the one who fears the Lord, at the contentedness and the freedom and the love and the fearlessness and the the generosity, the selflessness of the one who fears the Lord, he feels his frustration. He's confronted with his resentment and his anger. Ultimately, that means when he looks at Jesus the one who embodies the wisdom of God, he can't stand it. He sees Jesus and he gnashes his teeth. When he sees Jesus, he will gnash his teeth. Do you see Jesus and get angry and feel like he's an insult to your life? Or do you see Jesus and fall down before his greatness in fear? Do you see Jesus and you want his life to fill you up and make you more like him, full and free and gracious and merciful and righteous. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's probably true that um, if we're going to answer these questions honestly, what do we do with Jesus when we see him? We would answer both ways. We feel that he is a, a challenge to our wickedness, and we also desperately want to be more like him. Uh, we see all the beauty and wholeness of the life of wisdom in Jesus that fearlessness, that selflessness, that generosity, the participation in the divine life, the communion, the blessed communion, and we want that. And so we receive it from you as a gift, and we pray that that gift would shape our lives more and more, that we would be the kind of people who give ourselves, even as Jesus has given himself for us. We pray that this would be more and more true of us day by day, and we look forward to the day when we'll see Jesus and we'll be instantly transformed into his likeness. That'll be a good day. We look forward to that day and pray that you would make it come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.